Generative design enables designers to work with a combination of computing processes and artificial intelligence to solve complex engineering challenges. Generative design coupled with additive manufacturing allows engineers and designers to create components or products which were not earlier possible with conventional design and manufacturing. In this episode of Aim Infocast, we connect with Lynn Kaiser, CEO Hyperganic, to understand how they are using the power of artificial intelligence and computer algorithms to simplify the design process in additive manufacture. Tune in as Lynn talks about his journey in the additive manufacturing industry, Hyperganic's expansion plans in Asia and the future of manufacturing. Welcome Lynn to AM Infocast and great to have you here for today. Thank you. Yeah, very happy to be here. Lynn, you come with 25 years of experience of driving disruptive technology ventures. Uh, how has your journey been with additive manufacturing and hyperganic uh, to be particular? Yeah, as you said, you know, I um, you know, have been uh, an entrepreneur quite, for quite a long time. In 2012, I discovered additive manufacturing, like many people through, you know, the MakerBot craze, lots of FDM printers around. But very quickly, I've been, uh, I was fascinated by what was going on. Uh, not so much in the consumer space, but in uh, the industrial space. You know, 20 minutes away from uh, our office in Munich is uh, one of the leading companies in additive manufacturing, EOS. And, uh, you know, I've uh, gotten some really good insights, you know, from, from, from these companies. What is really going on in the field of industrial additive, almost unbeknownst to most people. So I was really fascinated by this technology because I've been, you know, I've been working in computer. I've been a coder all my life. You know, of course, I haven't um, coded a lot of applications recently. I stopped, you know, 15 years ago. But I started uh, writing computer code when I was eight years old. So I witnessed the entire PC revolution. And uh, software for me was always one of the most creative things you can do. You can imagine something and then you can build it and there it interacts with you. So it's fascinating and there are almost no limits to what you can do. But what frustrated me immensely over the years was, you know, how much slower in contrast to the information technology revolution that I was witnessing, innovation happened in other spaces. So, you know, if you think about computer technology, you know, 10, 12 years ago, almost nobody had a smartphone. 20 years ago, very few people used the internet. 30 years ago, the first PCs were around. Very few people used them. 40 years ago, all of this stuff was invented. So we've seen a dramatic curve in information technology. And all, you know, most of this is, you know, has, has, has been powered by Moore's law, you know, expon exponential speed. So we are quite used to everything that is being touched by information technology is, is very, very fast, you know, quite disruptive and quite amazing, actually, if you think about it. But if you, you know, for example, you know, sit in a 40-year-old car, it's actually not that different. And if you look very closely, the only difference between a car 40 years ago and a car today is basically the presence of screens and, you know, all of the things that are basically connected to information technology again. So, you know, I, I know there are a lot of things behind the, uh, under the hood, no pun intended, but uh, fundamentally innovation has not been happening that fast. You know, if innovation in transportation had happened as fast as in information technology, we would be all flying in, in cars, you know, and levitating and, you know, flying to the moon and whatever, right? You know, so there's a stark contrast between these two fields. 
And I realized that additive manufacturing is quite similar in its way to coding. You know, so you code something and you can print it. And you know, as long as it adheres to the laws of physics, you know, it is actually buildable. And that fascinated me. And so I thought, you know, maybe there is a way we can connect the speed of information technology to additive manufacturing to dramatically accelerate innovation in physical products. And why is that important? Well, we face a lot of challenges as humanity these days. And a lot of these challenges are engineering challenges. And we think, and I think, that by using our approach, the hyperganic approach, together with additive manufacturing, we can actually out-innovate some of these challenges. And so what is our approach? So one of the things that I think has hampered the adoption and the breakthroughs in additive manufacturing is that we're still feeding these printers with models that were designed using tools that were created for something completely different. So if you think about it, if you sit in front of a modern CAD computer-aided design application, it is essentially a direct descendant of pen and paper. You know, a hundred years ago, people drew a plan on pen and with pen and paper, and then you know somebody would build the thing that they drew for them. Today, we do it in a very sophisticated computer-aided environment, but fundamentally, you're still sitting there. You know, your brain invents something, and then you put it on paper or you encode it into the computer. Uh, using geometric primitives, but it's a very, very manual and laborious process. And so the idea that I had, and together with my co-founder, Michael Gallo, is how can we use the power of software, of a software paradigm, not an application software like a CAD system, but literally using code to describe objects. And that's what we're doing with Hyperganics. So the first couple of years, Michael and I, you know, we were just looking at the basics. You know, we created a completely new geometry stack, you know, that allowed us to create objects that are almost limited in complexity. Why is that uh, so important? Because once you have a computer design things automatically, things automatically also become more complex. So we did that for the first couple of years. And then in 2017, we started the company we self-funded it most, mostly. I mean, we had a big exit in 2011. We sold our last company to Adobe, you know, a completely different space image processing for uh, the film industry. And so we were able to self-fund for a really long time, you know, took a little bit of angel money. But then you know, earlier this year closed a significant seed financing round of 7.8 7, 7, million and have been you know, growing really fast. You know, uh, we had uh, 12 people last year. We have 40 people here. You know, now at this point, want to go to 50 people and then triple again the company until the end of next year. So what are we doing? Hyperganic builds objects, physical objects, using computer algorithms and AI, and then outputs them on in digital factories for mass production using additive manufacturing. And our paradigm is very radically different from the way you traditionally build objects. Traditionally, you design objects through a uh, visual process. You create visually the object that you have in your mind. What we do is we create a logical representation of the object and then let the computer come up with the actual shape. 
And so the objects that we create are in a very, very broad range of industries. We are working with consumer goods. You know, we're working in the medical field. We're working on aerospace applications. And uh, it's been a blast. You know, it's, a, it's been a long time coming. You know, you had to spend a lot of really significant work on establishing the base technology. But here we are now, the year 2021, and uh, we are building objects from code and we are lifting you know, all of this to a new paradigm that hopefully will help us dramatically accelerate innovation because we badly need it. That's great. And it's, it's a really interesting journey and you know the problem statement you found in the industry to work towards it. And Hyperganic, as you said, is using artificial intelligence and algorithms to simplify the design process in additive manufacturing. So can you provide a little more in-depth insight behind this approach? Yes, exactly. And I wouldn't so much say it simplifies it. It's just a different paradigm. So what we do is when you as an engineer, when you create an object, you are also following an algorithm. I mean, it's not like divine inspiration. It's not like, you know, somebody, you, know you sit in front of your co computer and magically a rocket engine you know, falls from the sky. No, I mean, you've learned how to design it. You have seen previous design. You have general uh, principles that you apply. And we take this knowledge, this algorithm that the engineer, you know, kind of intuitively follows, and we encode it in computer algorithms. Now, it's a software approach, right? You know, so it's not a visual approach. So at first, you know, it's, it's a little bit abstract, but people get it pretty quickly because, you know, well, I mean, the logical parts of an object are also very often correspond to visual aspects of it. So you know, it's very, very easy to actually connect that. So we take that. And then, you know, using our novel geometry kernel, we can then generate interesting shapes and, you know, connect them and grow cooling channels and can do all kinds of things. And the interesting thing about this approach is that a lot of this can get really generalized. For example, we had a, one of our aerospace engineers here um, at Hyperganic created a novel type of rocket combustion chamber. Uh, for her master's thesis uh, at the University of Stuttgart. And we were able to take some of the algorithms that she developed for routing cooling channels you know, across the surface of this rocket engine and apply it to the medical field where we need to grow capital, capillaries that then are printed on a bioprinter you know, for blood vessels. So it is very interesting that you know, some things, some principles of engineering are pretty universal and you can apply them in a very broad field. So what are we doing? I mean, we are basically working with our customers and say, okay, you know, how would you design this object if you did it manually? And then we move that to the computer. And now one very interesting thing happens. The computer, of course, never tires. The computer never wants to go home. So you can explore a vastly bigger solution space than if you did that as a traditional engineer. As a traditional engineer, you have one shot, maybe two shots, maybe three shots, maybe four iterations until you have to have a perfect object. So you will always kind of err on the side of it being a little bit over-engineered. So the objects that we have all around um, you and I, all the people listening, I challenge you to look very carefully at all the physical objects that you have in your room right now and think you know, whether they are truly optimal. Are they the perfect representation of what they should be? And you know, the answer very often is no. I mean, they are pretty simple. I mean, there's a tube you know, connected to 
to a piece of wood and we call it a table. Yeah? Uh, but it could actually be way more interesting. And if you want to see something interesting, then you just look out in nature. If you look at a tree, if you look at a flower, if you look you know, just at your hand, you imagine that machines could be way more complex. And what does nature do? Well, nature designs things not by you know, plan, it designs it by accident, it designs it by evolution. And so when you move engineering into computer algorithms, you can start doing that as well. Not every object that you create needs to function perfectly, but you, if you generate a thousand objects, you can pick the three that are hopefully going to perform very well. You can simulate, you can create feedback loops, you can print them and test them. And so you kind of emulate what innovation does in nature, what, what nature does with evol evolution for creating innovation. And that's a very, very interesting thing that's happening is that uh, the objects that we create are far more elegant, far more functional, far more complex and far more sustainable very often than the stuff that you traditionally engineer when you have an engineer who has limited time and, and just wants to go home at some point. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting, you know, the approach which you're taking at Hyperganic. And we understand from your past, uh, you know, press releases and case studies that you are working in application sectors like aerospace, medical and consumer applications. Can you enumerate a few success stories which have been enabled with your technology in the, in the recent past? Yeah, I mean, one of, the, one of the challenges that we have is that we are under strict non-disclosure agreements with most of the projects that we are working on. I can give you some examples, though. Yeah, I mean, for example, there is one field that is extremely important for the future of humanity, and that's the entire field of heating and cooling. So the Earth is getting warmer and warmer. We are all talking about climate change. We are actually going to be with Hyperganic at the COP26 conference in Glasgow very soon you know, to talk about some of these issues. Heating and cooling is one of the things that we need to actually solve. And uh, heating and cooling takes a lot of energy, emits a lot of CO2, and it is incredibly inefficient how it's currently done. So um, we can now design heat exchangers now, what is a heat exchanger? The, the, the tubes behind your refrigerator is a heat exchanger. Uh, a heat sink for a microchip is a heat exchanger. A uh, AC system, air conditioning system has a heat exchanger. So heat exchangers are everywhere. And by using these algorithmic engineering approaches, we can now start designing structures that are significantly more complex than you would ever engineer as a human. Now, why is that important for heat exchangers? If you look at heat exchangers, one of the things that they always need to balance is the amount of pressure that falls off when you push something through it. So in other words, the resistance, if I push air through a heat exchanger, you know, ideally it goes through without effort because then I don't need a big fan you know, to drive it. And the other thing is, of course, surface area. You know, the more surface you know, it is, uh, is exposed to the heat, uh, the more heat I can also take away. And in traditional engineering, it's very hard to balance these two things against each other. But if you have an algorithmic engineer, you can explore a lot of really radical solutions. And uh, that's what we're doing. And we are seeing incredibly uh, incredible uh, performance gains using these kinds of approaches. If you could just save 20% or 30% or 40% of the energy that currently goes, for example, into cooling of large server farms, you could really make a dent in global carbon emissions. If you found a way to 
build air conditioning systems that consume significantly less power, you could also make a huge dent in electricity consumptions, especially in, in hotter climates. And again, you know, reduce the amount of electricity that needs to be generated, reduce the amount of carbon emissions immediately. So we're working on some of these things, you know, consumer goods, a lot of things, you know, um, that are going on currently. One of the interesting aspects of having an, a computer algorithm as an engineer is that you can generate objects automatically based on external data. So for example, we did some work with people who create bicycle helmets. I don't know if you have a fitting bicycle helmets. I have five kids. You know, I can tell you once a year buying bicycle helmets for all of these five kids is, is, is really a very pleasant experience. Not. So we're trying to squeeze you know, one size fits all helmets onto people who have vastly different heads. So if you can start with a head scan, and then grow the helmet algorithmically over that scan, you have a perfectly fitting helmet and you can take the crash data that you get from bicycle accidents, which unfortunately also still happen, and feed that also into the algorithm and reinforce the helmet in certain areas. So for example, one helmet that we did a while ago uh, was very strong on the sides, but you know at the top it was very transparent and let the air through because people know never fall on the top of their heads. You know they've always fall to the sides. You know you would have to have a really strange bicycle crash if you were to hit exactly the top of your head. So you can actually reduce the material. You know let the air go through, etc. So a lot of these kinds of things are happening. So I would say the sweet spot for our technology right now is three areas. One, because you have an algorithmic engineer, a computerized engineer that never tires, you can build objects that are far more complex than anything that has ever been attempted before. So this is very, very interesting for a lot of fields, you know, especially in the medical field. You, know, you can build bone-like structures, but now you can use these bone-like structures also in other engineering fields. Very, very interesting. Now you can, uh, I gave the example of heat exchangers, build really complex surface areas, et cetera. Very interesting. So highly complex objects is one area. The other area is customized objects, mass customized objects. So objects that are all similar, but every object is different, like the bicycle helmet that I gave as an example. So here you have an input, then you have an algorithmic process that automatically runs, and you have an output that then can go directly into production. So this is a field where we are very strong. And then the third field is basically the area where you need to optimize things to perfection. So instead of one object, you generate thousands of objects, you evaluate them somehow, you're, you're testing them, you're simulating them, you're test firing them, whatever. And then you feed that back into the, uh, into the algorithmic loop and you improve upon. That's kind of synthetic evolution. And there you explore a gigantic solution space with lots of different parameters and you search for one optimal solution. And that's the third area. So the three areas are highly complex objects, mass customized objects, and highly optimized objects. This is where we're currently shining. And these are where all the applications are currently located that we're approaching together with our customers. And our customers are all over the world, right? You know, we have customers in the United States, we have customers in Europe, we have customers in Southeast Asia, Asia we have customers in China, we have customers in the 
uh, in the Arabic uh, world, we have customers in Africa. So except for Antarctica, I think we have basically covered all the continents by, by now. Yeah, that's great. And congratulations on the success uh, you had in, in the short time since inception. And now, you know, you are expanding into Asia with your first footprint in Singapore. What does your plans for Asia look like? Yeah, I'm actually currently in Singapore and you're very happy to be have finally let in. Yeah. So the Singapore government allowed uh, Germans, specifically Germans, I don't know what we did right, you know, but specifically Germans were allowed in. You know, if I were from Austria or Switzerland or France, you know, I couldn't get in. So we have a wonderful office here in Singapore now. Uh, we have uh, grown this from uh, basically one person to 15 people over the course of the last eight months. And um, we are super, super happy just because of the quality of people we find here. Yeah, very well-educated, very diligent, very, very uh, good work ethics. And um, so we are looking to significantly expanding this office again you know, over the course of the next 12 months. And we see um, a lot of growth here just in terms of the staff level. Now, what do we do here? I mean, some companies open up offices in... Uh, countries like Singapore, generally in Asia and China, whatever, to have a sales office there, to have a beachhead to enter the market. Now, this is a, of course, valid aspect of any venture that, that you do. However, we don't see it that way. You know, we just look for amazing staff anywhere in the world where we can find it. And we look for alignment with uh, the local market. And, you know, there's something really fascinating about Singapore. Singapore has identified additive manufacturing as the future of industrialization. So there are a lot of projects going on here. There's a lot of interest by the government to focus on these kinds of technologies. And there's a, there's a true willingness to move this sector forward. I have rarely seen something like that because in Europe, something like that is very, very unusual. In, in, in Europe, you know, innovation happens, basically it's driven by companies and you know, the government you know, doesn't really do much, you know, it doesn't steer much. In Singapore, we see the same thing. In China, we see some of this also in the, uh, in the Arabic states. The governments are very visionary in a way to establish certain technologies and certain paradigm shifts for their country. Singapore, for example, um, identified just at the beginning of their foundation, the microchip industry as a very important future technology and industry. And I think two years after independence of Singapore, a National Semiconductor actually built the first fab here. And Singapore is still one of the leading countries for building and exporting microchips. And they are doing this for um, additive manufacturing. So this is another good reason to be here, but the primary reason here in Singapore is really because we are just amazed by the quality of people we find, and we are super happy to have them integrated in our, into our global team. Now, Asia uh, in general, I mean, there is a lot of stuff going on. We have quite a few customers in Asia. We also have an entity in China. We are uh, looking at a staff there now. It's a little bit complicated because of COVID and because we cannot travel there, but we're looking forward to ramping this up significantly over the course of the next couple of months as these COVID restrictions are hopefully uh, getting lifted. You know, we have 
Now, we have established some initial staff uh, in China to serve our customers there. And we are very, very excited uh, about the future there. You know, also Japan, Korea, you know, all of these countries are of very, very high interest to us. And uh, we have our first initial customers in these. Yeah, that's great, Lynn. Good to know about your plans about Asia and, you know, how your technology will revolutionize and change a lot of how manufacturing is done in the region. So what does the future of manufacturing look like with the convergence of AI and additive manufacturing going ahead? Yeah, so the future of manufacturing is something that excites me a lot because, you know, almost everything around us is manufactured, right? You know, so any any changes there, any dramatic changes there will have dramatic effect on our lives. And we need this dramatic effect. As I said earlier, you know, we are kind of running out of time with some of our global issues. And as uh, Chris uh, Diana Figueres said, you know, the architect of the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, the fourth industrial revolution is what is going to solve this. Nothing else can solve it. Nothing else is fast enough to actually give us the innovations that we need now to solve this. So additive manufacturing has long been treated as kind of a stepchild of manufacturing. It was used for prototyping. It was, it was used for small production runs. It was, it was used for very small experiments, you know, usually relegated to the innovation projects of companies. This is all changing. You know, if you've been to any of the recent trade shows, Formnext, you know, two years ago, it was all about the industrialization of AM. So currently additive manufacturing is all done in boutique factories. You know, you have people running around with vacuum cleaners and, you know, taking stuff out manually, you know, depowdering it manually, whatever. You know, there's a lot of manual work. But if you go to a BMW manufacturing plant, you don't see a lot of people running around, you know, with vacuum cleaners and, you know, holding stuff in their hand. It's all automated. So what we're going to see in the next months and years is more and more automation coming to AM, and that enables digital factories. Now, these digital factories will not have many workers inside, but they will be highly flexible. They will be they will be integrated. There will be a lot of different processes integrated. So additive manufacturing is not just the manufacturing part in the printer. It's also the finishing, you know, and uh, making sure that there's actually a, a real object coming out that you could sell. So we are going to see a lot of the integration of these processes. And we are going to see a split between two trends. You know, there will be highly decentralized factories that are relatively small, that can produce relatively universally. And then what you're also going to see is highly concentrated, super complex smart factories that are not cheap, that are not small, and they're probably going to be centralized because they're very, going to be very expensive. So I think these are the two trends that you're going to see, you know, decentralized manufacturing very close to the consumer and then centralized, but highly complex, you know, highly integrated Maybe uh, the microchip factories you know, of today are a good indication of where this could go. Now, the interesting thing is that this, that's just the manufacturing part. That's the big enabler. The only thing that we are interested in as Hyperganic is mass manufacturing. When I say mass manufacturing, I don't say we produce the same objects all over again. I say it's a large number of objects that are going to be produced. So this is what we are driving, and this is what is going to happen in the next years. The important enabler 
on the design side is our new software paradigm where we can design objects that have never been attempted before because their design and their engineering would have been too complex. So this is really, really exciting. When you have a software paradigm, you solve problems usually only once, and then you just reuse the software. If you, in traditional software engineering, if you design a database, then you can just from now on use the database. Other people can use the database. What they use the database for, whether they use it for uh, a social media platform or for you know, tracking flights or for you know, doing a customer relationship management, doesn't matter, you know, it's a database. If somebody builds a better database, they can just plug it in and now this thing works faster, better, whatever. So you invent things only once. Now, if you move that to engineering, it means you can invent things once and then everybody can use it. And there's going to be open source things, there's going to commercial aspects of it. But fundamentally, the big transformation is that people solve a problem only once and then everybody can use it. And if a problem can be solved at a little bit better, then everybody can move very quickly to this better solution. So this is how innovation in IT works. And this is how innovation in uh, engineering is going to work. And these two elements together, you have a software-driven engineering approach that comes up with highly optimized and highly innovative new objects all the time and this coupled with a flexible manufacturing process where objects can actually change and it doesn't matter because the printer doesn't care whether it prints the same thing or a different thing every time. You know, this is together is going to be a gigantic enabler for breakthrough innovation. Currently with traditional manufacturing, you're not only hampered by the tools, you're also hampered by the fact that you have to build a specific machine for a specific object and you're very highly disincentivized to change the design of the object because then you also have to redesign the machine and maybe you just have to redesign the tool but it is still a lot of work. In additive manufacturing your manufacturing process is very flexible so whenever you come up with a new invention, whenever you come up with a new innovation on the design side, you can immediately implement it in practice. And this is really going to speed up things dramatically. And if you want to know how much it's going to speed up, then just look at Moore's law, just look at what happened in, the, in IT, just look at you know, the last 20 years in computer technology. This speed is now going to manifest itself in engineering and manufacturing. And all bets are off how the world in 10, 15 years is going to look like. That sounds great. I think that's a quite a you know insightful thought and you know information for all our audience. And uh, you spoke about Asia, and we hope to see India also feature in your plans because India is a huge manufacturing base. So I hope to uh, you know see you in India sometime soon. Oh, absolutely. We do have some customers in India, and we do have some plans in India. We see India and China a little bit separate from Asia as a general term because I think it's a very specific market and uh, you have to approach it in a very different way. Great, great, great. So thanks Lynn for joining us today and sharing your views about the future of manufacturing with artificial intelligence and uh, hope to see you soon. Thank you Aditya. So really enjoyed our conversations and uh, looking forward to the result. Thank you for joining us for another episode of AM Infocast powered by AM Chronicle. Do tune in next week for another new episode.